God, thank you so much for uh, this long passage, this, um, this turning point, actually, not just in, in the book of Acts, but really it's a turning point in the history of the world. And Lord, thanks that we get to, to look at that. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, being back over in the UK reminded me of a time that uh, when we lived in Liverpool, uh, for a few years we lived in this ground floor apartment. And out the, the back windows, actually it's the only windows, uh, out the only windows of our apartment, it looked on this neighborhood behind um, that it basically had a bunch of like sort of townhouses. And so it was like tall, narrow houses. Um, and each house had its own uh, fenced-in gate. And so each house had like a maybe three-and-a-half, four-foot-tall black iron gate. And everything was inside the gate, even the driveway. So if you had a car and you parked in the driveway, you would have to open the gate, park the car, and then you'd close the gate. So this is what these houses looked like. And uh, one evening I was, I was making dinner in the kitchen, and uh, Emmy was on her way home from work. So I'm home by myself, getting dinner ready, and I was doing some kind of slow-cook thing on the stove. And so I didn't really need to stay in the kitchen, so... While it was cooking, I would go and watch TV and sit on the sofa, and it kind of looked out over these windows that looked over these houses that I just described. And uh, every now and again, I'd get up and go to the kitchen and stir the pot and just check everything was okay. And one of the times I got up, I saw something out the window in front of one of these houses just out the corner of my eye. And what I saw was a guy with uh, no trousers or pants on uh, climbing on the top of a car inside one of these gated driveways. And I was like, what the heck is happening? What is going on over there? And so I'm like, I think I might need to call the police. So I grab my phone and I move over towards the window. And what I actually see, what was actually happening was the reason this guy, his, his pants were down around his ankles and he was climbing on top of this car because there was a, a pit bull that was attacking him. And it actually grabbed onto his pants and pulled them all the way down. And because of the gate in the yard, he couldn't get out. So the safest thing he could do was climb up on top of this car. And so I call 999, which is the 911 number there, and, uh, and they're like, what do you need? I was like, everything, send everything, send police, send ambulance, send the army, send everything, because this guy, is, he's not going to make it. And anyway, I got a little caught up in that. Um, basically, this dog had locked onto him, and this dog was not going to let him go. And what I learned later from the police that came to take my statement, what I learned later from the police was that this dog was actually trained as an attack dog. And so I don't know if the guy was trespassing. I don't know if they just had a fight. I have no idea the whole circumstances of it. I'm not going to fill you in. It's pretty gory, the rest of it. I'm not going to fill you in on the rest of it. I'm going to save you from that. But this dog was locked on to this guy. And he was not going to let him go. And... Uh, it's that kind of murderous intensity against Christians that Saul is described at the beginning of this passage. That's what I want you to picture as it says Paul was breathing out murderous threats against the Christians. That's the picture that's being painted here, like, a, like an attack dog locked onto its enemy. And yet what's extraordinary about this passage is by the end of it, it says not only was Paul speaking boldly in the name of Jesus, but the church itself was enjoying a time of peace and strength and was growing by the end of it. And so the question is, what happened in the middle? What, what happened in the middle? How is it that Paul was so transformed that he went from this hostile person to someone who's humble, from, from persecutor to, as you see at the end, persecuted, from prosecutor to preacher? How does he go from one to the other? And that would be an interesting thing to find out. But actually, I also want to ask the question, what, why does that story even matter to us today? 
But why is this story about a man becoming a Christian 2,000 years ago on a, a remote road outside of Damascus, Syria, have to do with people in the 21st century in Los Angeles? What does it have to do with us? Well, three things. I think, one, it helps us understand the story that Luke is telling. So he's telling a story about how Christianity went from a group of 120 men and women with 11 leaders to a global movement in just a few decades. How does that happen? That leads us then to the second reason why it's important to us today, that the man in this story who becomes a Christian is far and away the second most influential person to ever live. The whole of Western society is built on the teachings of this one man, of the, the things that he wrote down. Now, only Jesus Christ is more influential than this man in the story. But then thirdly, something that God says about this man right in the middle of the passage is immensely helpful for what it looks like to be a Christian and actually follow Christ even today. And we'll get more into this at the very end, but notice in verses 15 and 16, there is what we would think a, a sort of incompatibility. In verse 15, it says, God says that this man is his chosen instrument. So God's chosen him, he's going to use him, this is going to be great. But then the very next verse, it also says that God will show him how much he will suffer. And that is, in our minds, totally incompatible. How could, how could somebody be in God's will doing what he's asking to do, but then also suffer? We look at those things as incompatible. Because we tend to think, well, if I'm God's chosen instrument, if God has a wonderful plan for my life, then that, surely that means no suffering. Right? Surely that means if I'm doing God's will, if I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do, then of course I'm not going to suffer. But we tend to think, you know, if we're suffering in some way, then, then actually maybe it means we've missed God's will. Somehow we've maybe, or, or we've disobeyed him in some way. And so if life is hard, then, then we tend to interpret that as like, well, I've missed God's will in some way. I'm outside of it. But what this text is saying is, is the exact opposite of that. This text is saying that God's chosen instruments, the ones who will carry out his will, what this text is saying is they will suffer. And so it might be that we need a paradigm shift, that maybe suffering is actually an indicator that you're right at the center of God's will. Now, it doesn't mean we should seek out suffering. We should certainly avoid intentionally suffering. But if you're suffering, for instance, suffering to reconcile a marriage, suffering, suffering in singleness as you wait for a, a good Christian partner, suffering in your career because you refuse to compromise your integrity, suffering to live in a place like Los Angeles when it would be much easier to live somewhere else, or at least you think it would, suffering because you're a Christian, suffering for sharing your faith, those kinds of suffering are much more an indicator that a person is right at the very center of God's will. And we'll get more of that at the end. And so this passage actually has a lot to say for us today. And by the way, you know, in this passage, he's, the, the person we're talking about is, is called Saul. But of course, we all know that he gets renamed Paul. He's the famous Apostle Paul. And so just bear with me. I'll likely flip back and forth between calling him Saul and Paul. Uh, but I'm, when I do that, I'm just referring to the same person. So Saul was transformed from hostile to humble, from persecutor to persecuted. And the question is, what happened in the middle? How did he change so drastically from one to the other? Because if we can grasp that, if we can understand the, the, the fulcrum there, the, the, the point of change, then it will help us as we suffer. It will help us as we seek to follow Christ. And by the way, if you're not a Christian, it will actually show you that conversion, this kind of transformation is actually possible for anyone including the least likely to be converted. 
the Apostle Paul is by far the least likely to be converted. And so how does he go through this transformation? We're going to look at that in just two parts. So part one, we'll look at his conversion, Paul's conversion. And part two, we'll look at Paul's Christ. Who is it that he commits his life to? So part one, Paul's conversion. Now remember, Saul has this murderous intensity of a guard dog looking to devour a would-be threat. In fact, look again, verse one. It says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciple. And I love this. The word there for breathing out uh, is only used here in the entire New Testament. This is the only time it gets used in all of the New Testament. And the translation is actually a little bit misleading because the word actually means not breathe out, but breathe in. And so really it's saying Saul was breathing in murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And I get why they chose to translate it as breathe out because you don't breathe in threats. You know, you don't breathe in as you speak, you breathe out. You know, so if you try to breathe in as you speak, it's really hard. <laughs> Doesn't sound very intimidating. I'm going to arrest you. Like it's just that people would laugh at Paul. And so the picture that Luke is trying to paint is like that attack dog from earlier. It's that Saul is so determined to carry on with this persecution against Christians that he's like a wild beast that snorts before it attacks. You can think of a bull in the bull ring who scratches at the ground and then snorts before it goes on the attack, or a wild boar charging at its prey. If you want to try that noise out, uh, wait till after church, please. Um, But what you'll find is if you want to snort, you have to breathe in, right? You can't make that noise unless you breathe in. And so that's the picture that Luke is painting for us, that he's this wild beast on the attack, locked onto his prey. And that the breathing in, the taking it in, actually gives him energy. He's filling his heart, he's filling his soul with this anger, with this murderous murderous threats. And so that's giving him his energy, he's breathing it in. And so that's Paul at the start, but by the end of our passage, he's an utterly changed man. By verse 20, it says he's preaching in the synagogues about Jesus. In verse 22, it says that he's, the word is proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And the word there for proving actually means sort of placing together putting alongside, and so what he's doing is he's opening up the Old Testament scriptures, and he's saying this one is talking about Jesus. And so he's gone from somebody who's wanting to arrest and attack Christians to somebody who's opening up the Old Testament scriptures and saying, you see this verse here? It's talking about Jesus. And by the way, did you notice where he's doing it? In verse 19, he's doing it in Damascus. If you remember from the start of the passage, it's the very place that he went to go and arrest every Christian in the city. He went there to drag them back to Jerusalem where he likely would have sought to have them executed. But even more than that, I want you to think about how discontent he must have been before his conversion. How restless he must have been. He's breathing in anger. Murderous threats. He's traveling miles and miles to arrest and kill people he's never met. And yet at the very end of his life, he's able to say this in a letter to the church in Philippi. I'll put this on the screen for you. Philippians 4, verse 11. It says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So how can somebody so discontented, so murderous, so angry, 
at the end of his life say, I can be content no matter the circumstances? Well, the Bible's answer to that is conversion. And so Christianity, it's not a life enhancement program for Saul. He doesn't just add some Christian activities and some Christian morals to enhance his life. We're talking about a dramatic, life-altering conversion where the essence, in essence, he was headed in one direction and then he meets Christ and then he's headed completely in the opposite. Now, how does that happen? Well, before we look at that in detail, I want to say that there's a bit of danger in looking at this text that we could think that every person's story, their conversion, their how they became a Christian needs to be, or any true conversion would be, this dramatic. Luke is not saying that. In fact, the vast majority of the conversions that Luke mentions uh, in the book of Acts are not nearly as extraordinary. In fact, most of them just come as a result of hearing a sermon, like right now, or having a conversation with a friend or a neighbor. And so you you read this as you read through Luke. It's like somebody preached and then 3,000 people believed. There's no visions of Jesus. But this one is extraordinary. And so it says in our text, verse 2, that Saul was on his way to Damascus with papers in hand to arrest all the Christians there. And then notice, uh, the very first thing to notice here in verse 3 is this bright light. It says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now, we actually know that this light flashed, this happened at noon, because this story gets recounted two more times in the book of Acts, in chapter 22 and in chapter 26. And both times, Paul is recounting what happens. Both times he says that it was noon when this happened, which means it happened at the brightest time of the day, when the sun is highest in the sky. Now, I I think only the blue-eyed people here will be able to fully identify with me. Where's my blue-eyed people? There's a couple of us. Great. You probably can identify with me. Some of you are like, maybe they're blue. How, how do you not know? <laughs> anyway, you blue-eyed people, I don't want to make you mad at me because I need you to identify with me. So the blue-eyed people, uh, have you ever had the sun sneezes? Do you know what I'm talking about? You walk outside and the sun is bright and you immediately start sneezing. You brown-eyed people are like, you're crazy, what are you talking about? And I was explaining this to a brown-eyed person once, and they really were like, you are nuts, you're crazy, that's not a thing. And I'm like, no, it's a thing. Every time I walk outside without my sunglasses on and the sun is bright, I immediately start sneezing. They're like, it's not a thing. I was like, it is a thing. And so I live in an era where I can pick up my phone and get information instantaneously. So I looked it up. Is it a thing? And guess what? Do you know what science says, whoever that is? Do you know what they say? (laughs) It's a thing. (laughs) And in fact, what happens is there's less, I think, pigment or something in our our, uh, irises. And so it lets more light in. So blue-eyed people, actually, we take more light in than you brown-eyed people. But also what happens is when you walk outside, uh, your pupils close so quickly that it's all connected with your sinuses. So when that happens, it just causes you to sneeze. And so you get the sun sneezes. Uh, And so it's a thing. If you don't believe me, look it up. It really is a thing. But here's the thing. This is L.A. It's always sunny here. And so I sneeze almost every time I walk outside without sunglasses on. And uh, there's been a phenomenon that's happened. Some of you blue-eyed people probably know this. Uh, Before COVID, if you sneezed, people felt sorry for you. Do you remember that? You'd sneeze, people like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? Would you like me to take you to the hospital? You know, is there anything I can do for you? In fact, even people who don't believe in God are like, God bless you. (laughs) Now you sneeze, and you have to say sorry. You sneeze, and people look at you like you're patient zero of the next pandemic. So anyway, that's... 
Nothing like the light that Paul saw. <laughs> See, there's, a, there's the connection. Uh, okay. This light that Paul saw was brighter than the noonday sun. It, it says it knocked him to the ground and blinded him. This is extraordinary. Now, remember who Paul, Saul is. He's a Pharisee, which means he's an expert in the Bible. In fact, he probably has whole portions of it, maybe the majority of it, memorized. He knows it backwards and forwards. And so when things happen, they'll just remind him of Scripture. And for Paul, a light that bright could only be associated with one thing. If you know your Old Testament, when there's a bright light like that, that means God's presence. The very presence of God himself. In fact, I wonder if Saul was thinking of Ezekiel chapter 1, where Ezekiel says he actually had several encounters, several visions where he met God. And in particular, in Ezekiel, it says this in Ezekiel 1.28, it says, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. He's talking about God. So was the radiance. He's talking about a bright light. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down and heard the voice of one speaking. Now, do you remember what our text says? Look again. Look really closely. Verse 3. It says, as he's nearing Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell on the ground and heard a voice. And so I think at this point, there's no question in Saul's mind that like Ezekiel, he's having an encounter with God. And notice, and this is amazing, notice the verse says to him, Saul, Saul. And if you read through the Old Testament, when God addresses somebody, oftentimes in the Old Testament, when God's addressing you, he says your name twice. When he met Moses, he said, Moses, Moses. When he called Samuel, he called him by his name twice. And so here is Saul having been confronted with the radiant glory of the very presence of God. And God calls out to him, Saul, Saul. And what does he say to him? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, he must be confused at this point. Because he, he's not persecuting God. In his mind, what he's doing is he's rounding up all those blasphemers who say that Jesus is God. He's not persecuting God. He's helping God. And so how does Saul respond? Verse 5, he says, who are you, Lord? And the voice says back, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, I'm only speculating here. But as you probably know, this text was originally written down in, in ancient Greek. And at the time when Paul is living and where he's living, the common uh, language, common spoken language of the day, uh, when this would have happened, is a language called Aramaic. And again, I'm only speculating, but Saul also, because he's an expert in the Bible, he also would have spoken Hebrew and known Hebrew. And the very first two words of how God responds to Saul's question, who are you, should sound a little familiar. He says, I am. Who are you? I am. And for anyone who knows their Bible, those are familiar words. There was another story that happened where a man had an encounter with God in the midst of a strange light, a burning bush that was not consumed. And so, of course, I'm talking about Moses when he met God. And, and Moses says, what should I tell people? What should I say your name is? And in other words, who are you, God? And God responds by saying, I am who I am, which became the sacred name of God, Yahweh. 
And again, I'm only speculating, but I wonder if God said to Saul in Hebrew, Yahweh, Yeshua, I am Jesus. And in so doing, making a clear proclamation that Jesus Christ, the man who walked the streets of Jerusalem and the villages of Galilee, forgiving people of their sins, claiming to be the Son of God himself, the man who was crucified, buried, and risen from the dead, the one whose believers Saul was persecuting, if he's making a clear statement by saying, I am God, Yahweh Yeshua, I am Jesus. And so this is the moment where everything changes. This is the moment where he's converted. He, he meets Jesus Christ himself. Now, Saul's conversion was extraordinary. He meets the risen Christ who is so radiantly bright, it's so, it uh, sends him to the ground and it blinds him. Uh, not something most of us likely have experienced. But there is an element to this that is ordinary, that's common to every person, and it's this, that no one can come into contact with Christ and respond neutrally. But Paul doesn't respond, <laughs> he doesn't have this experience, and then walk away and be like, huh, interesting. Maybe I'll think about that later. He has an immediate choice to make. That either... Yahweh, Yeshua, Jesus is God, I am God. Either he really is God, and if so, then you have to center your whole life around him, or he's not. There's no neutral thing going on here. You can't be neutral about Jesus. You can't just say that he was a good moral teacher. You can't just say that he was merely an inspirational figure. C.S. Lewis put it this way uh, when, when talking about the same subject. He said, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. And so when Paul... Saul is confronted. He makes a choice. And if you're not yet a Christian, you, you've got that choice to make as well. Either he's, Jesus is a liar, he's crazy, he's a lunatic, or he really is Lord. There's no middle ground. And if you're a Christian, this means something for you too, because if he's the Lord, then that means that we have to follow and obey him. We have to center our whole lives around him. And this is exactly what Saul does from this moment forward. This is the moment of his conversion. This is the moment where everything is transformed. And this is what he does from uh, this moment forward. He, he follows Jesus as Lord. And that then leads us to part two, Paul's Christ. And there's two really interesting things that Jesus says in this passage. One of them, he says directly to Saul, 
and the other is to Ananias about Saul. And these two sayings, they point to two very significant doctrines, or really one significant doctrine and an implication that Paul will actually work out in his writings uh, and center his whole life around for the, for the rest of his life. Now think back to this. Who is it that Saul is persecuting? In earlier passages, it was Christians in Jerusalem. And now in this passage, he's on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus, to arrest them and most likely to have them mercilessly killed. And so who, that's who he's persecuting. He's persecuting Christians. But look closely. Look more closely at the text. What does Jesus say? He actually says it twice. That's how important it is. In verse 4, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then verse 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And notice he doesn't say, why do you, why do you persecute them? He says, why do you persecute me? And this might be why Paul asked the question in verse 5, who are you, Lord? He, he must have been thinking, I wasn't persecuting you, I was persecuting them. But as Jesus says this, he's in for the shock of his life. Uh, I mean, I sort of shocked somebody a couple of years ago. Uh, we went into this um, uh, like wine shop place, and they had a deal that if you bought a bottle to take home, you got 30% off. So that's a pretty good deal. So anytime we had people to the house, we would stop in there get a nice bottle for 30% off, and then serve it to our guests. And so we go in one day, and uh, we pick out a bottle, we bring it up to the cash register, and there's a guy there, um, and uh, he rings us up for full price. And Emmy's like, no, 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 it's 30% off. And he goes, oh, okay, hold on, it's, I can't quite figure this out. So he calls over another coworker, and they start speaking to each other in Italian. And they go back and forth in Italian. Uh, what they don't know is that Emmy knows Italian. And so the one guy's like, I can't figure out how to do this. And the other guy goes, ah, oh, there's a button there for 10%. Just give them 10% off. They won't notice. And Emmy responds in Italian. She says, no, no, trenta uh, percente, trenta percente. And the, like, their faces went white, their jaws dropped. They were shocked. They could not believe that they had been caught out on this. And this is the kind of shock that Saul must have gotten here. These shocking words had such a profound impact on him that the doctrine that Jesus introduces with these words, why do you persecute me, this doctrine shows up now in almost every single one of Paul's writings. The doctrine that Jesus introduces with these words, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me, is the doctrine of our union with Christ. That is to say that a Christian is so united to Christ that whatever a person does to a Christian, that person is doing it to Christ. And so if you persecute a Christian, you're persecuting Christ. And of course, the opposite actions are true as well. If you show kindness, if you show love, if you serve a Christian, then you've done that to Christ. Where Jesus said, whatever you've done unto the least of these, you've done unto me. And this is what is so profoundly shocking to Saul, that all the while, what he was doing to Christians, overseeing their deaths, tormenting them, arresting them, all the while, as he was doing that, he was doing it to Christ, to God. And what this doctrine says is that Christ is so united with his people, with his church, that whatever is true of Christ is true of the Christian. Whatever is true of the Christian is true of Christ. Whatever belongs to Christ belongs to the Christian. Whatever belongs to the Christian belongs to Christ. And this is the very, the very look, get this, this is the first doctrine that Jesus teaches Paul. The very first thing he teaches him. 
Why do you persecute me? It's union language. And in some ways, this doctrine becomes the basis of everything that Paul teaches from here on out. In Romans 6, it says that we've been united with Christ in his death and united with him in his resurrection. Then in the book of Ephesians, actually almost the entire book of Ephesians is in one way or another about this doctrine of being united with Christ. But the most clear picture of it is Ephesians 5, where it says that the union uh, between a a husband and his wife, a groom and a bride, when the two become one, is actually just a picture of how a Christian is united to Christ. That everything that belongs to the groom now belongs to the bride. And all that belongs to the bride now belongs to the groom. Because if you apply that doctrine, that same union, to the Christian and to Christ, the exchange becomes infinitely greater. Because what it means is that all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our weaknesses, all of our fears, all of our anxieties, all of our foolishness, guess what? They now belong to him. And what he does is he takes them upon himself at the cross. That's the whole reason for the cross. It's the whole reason for his forsakenness on the cross that at that moment he's actually paying the debt for everything we ever did or will do wrong. Our debt became his debt, just as if a, a, a groom brings debt into a marriage. The debt belongs to the bride and vice versa. And, and get this, in exchange, all of Christ's righteousness, all of his love, all of his strength, all of his wisdom becomes ours. It is poured out. It is lavished on us. And this is what Jesus is profoundly pointing to when he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Because whatever you do to them, you've done to me. We are so united. To persecute them is to persecute me. And so firstly, the the Christ that Saul meets is a Christ who is utterly, profoundly, essentially united to his people. But then secondly, there's an implication from this that the Christ that Saul meets is actually one who suffered, who suffers. And we see this in the second thing that Jesus says in the story. And this time he's speaking to Ananias. We talked about this at the beginning. It's in verses 15 and 16. Jesus tells Ananias to go and lay hands on on Saul and to pray for him and to baptize him. By the way, just a side note. I love this in the passage. You know, it says that that he didn't eat or drink for like three days. He fasted for three days. And then Ananias comes, lays hands on the scales fall off. He can see again. Uh, And you, if it was me, the first thing I would do would be eat something. Do you know what Saul did? He got baptized. So there you go. If you haven't been baptized, don't eat until you get baptized. That's the application. Well, Jesus tells him to go and lay hands on him and to pray for him and to baptize him. And Ananias' response is valid. It's how I would respond. He says, essentially, in verses 13 and 14, uh, okay, God, are you kidding? (laughs) I've heard all about him. He's come here to Damascus specifically to arrest people like me. I'm not going. And then verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And of course, he does suffer. Saul does suffer. I mean, in this passage, it turns out that the people uh, in Damascus, who he thought he was supporting, they actually actually hatch a plot to kill him. Uh, And he ends up having to leave Damascus shamefully. They actually lower him over uh, over the city wall at night in a basket to get out of the city so he doesn't get killed. And then he gets back to Jerusalem, 
And they try to kill him there too. And so they sneak him out of Jerusalem. So did, did he suffer? Of course he suffered. He went on to suffer. He got beaten multiple times within an inch of his life. He was shipwrecked. He was imprisoned. And so did he suffer? Of course he suffered. I remember what we said at the beginning, that these verses in Acts 9, they, they actually they seem, in our mind, in our sort of American dream mindset, to be incompatible. Like, how could somebody be doing God's will and yet be suffering at the same time? But what are these verses getting at? Well, it's getting at the fact that Christ suffered. And that as we suffer, he suffers. And not only did he suffer, but but he suffers when we suffer. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And what's he saying? He's saying that when my people suffer, I suffer, which means? Which means if you are suffering, all of your suffering is felt by Jesus. He feels it. He identifies with you. That is part of our union with Christ, that when we suffer, he suffers. Which means when you're suffering, it's not that God has abandoned you. It's that he's with you. He hasn't abandoned you. He's feeling your pain. In fact, in one place in the Bible, it says that Jesus takes up our pain. And so the fact of the matter is God's will and suffering are completely compatible. And why is that? It's because we have a God who suffered immensely at the cross. And guess what? That was his will. That was his plan. It was the whole reason Jesus came in the first place was to empty himself and to suffer. So how do we endure our suffering then? Well, it's by looking to the one who not only feels our suffering, but who suffered himself on our behalf and who overcame. Because Jesus not only suffered in his death, but he overcame suffering in the resurrection. And because he overcame suffering in his resurrection from the dead, we have a hope of overcoming our suffering when we're resurrected from the dead. Because why? What does scripture say? We're united with him in his death and... We're united with him in his resurrection. And when God seated him in the highest place, we are seated with him. Everything that is true of Christ is true of you and I. And it's the resurrection. It's the resurrection of Christ and the hope for resurrection for the Christian that puts suffering in its rightful context. Now, it's not going to give you the answer. This is not going to give you the answer. It's not going to be like, hey, here's the specific reason why you're suffering. It's not going to give you the answer. But... It gives you a context for suffering. It gives you something to, to put it inside. I once heard it put this way, that our suffering, it's like a nightmare. You know, if you've ever had a nightmare that uh, someone who you love died, you ever had that nightmare? Uh, in that, during the nightmare, it feels real. It feels as real as anything. You feel the pain, you feel the grief, you feel the mourning, you feel all of that. But then you wake up. And you wake up and they're fine. Now what does that nightmare do? It actually enhanced your love for that person. You love them more. You appreciate them more. Because in the nightmare, you lost them. Now, the doctrine of the resurrection is not just that when we're raised from the dead, everything is gone and it's only new. That's not the doctrine of the resurrection. That's not how the Bible describes it. It describes it as everything is renewed. Not new, but renewed, restored, put back together. 
And here's what this means, the doctrine of the resurrection. It engulfs your suffering. That's where you put your suffering. You put your suffering inside the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. It engulfs it. It doesn't end it, but it engulfs it. And what it says is everything that is broken, everything that is sad will be made new, will be renewed, will be put back together. All the worst things that ever happened when we have the resurrection will just be like it was a nightmare. All suffering is going to become only a nightmare, which means it will make your eventual joy in heaven that much greater. And so all your suffering only serves to enhance your joy. That's why God's will and suffering are completely compatible. Because all suffering will one day enhance joy. Remember what the book of Hebrews said about Jesus on the cross? Remember what it said, Hebrews 12.2? It said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Do you know what that's saying? It's saying that the suffering of the cross enhanced the joy. Now, I hope that shifts your paradigm on suffering to say that suffering for good things, suffering for righteousness, suffering as it says in our passage for the name of Jesus most likely means that you're right in the center of God's will. And that one day that suffering will only serve to enhance your joy. You'll enjoy it, the restoration so much more. And again, it doesn't give an answer, it doesn't give you the why, but at least it gives you somewhere to put it. Well, we better stop there, and we didn't even talk about Ananias. But as we do, let me just share one overarching application from this passage, and it's this. If Saul can be converted, if even he who is hell-bent on persecuting Christians, if even he can be saved, that means anyone can. And so, let's not hold back. The gospel is good news for everyone. There is not a person on earth for whom the gospel is not good news. So share it. Invite people to hear it. It's good news for you, and it's good news for me, and therefore, it's also good news for everyone. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for this incredible good news. That even Paul, who at one point describes himself as the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners, that even the gospel is good news for him. And so, Lord, we praise you, we rejoice, and we give you thanks that it's good news for us. And, Lord, I pray that in the midst of any of our suffering, in the midst of any of our pain, that we would think of that good news. And that we would know that it leads us one day to a resurrection. Where all things that are sad, all things that are broken, all things that are messed up will be restored, renewed. Lord, give us that hope in the midst of our pain. In Jesus' name, amen.